Okay, today <coughs> we're continuing our series on um, Russian Orthodox history. And we left off last time with Ivan the Terrible, or Ivan the Fourth, also known as Ivan the Torturer, um, who died in, I think, 1585, yeah, 1584, something like that. And who was contemporary with Queen Elizabeth in uh, England, so the uh, Elizabethan age and Shakespeare and all that are at the same time as Ivan was attempting to create a kind of uh, total dictatorship based on the idea of the divine appointment of him as king and that that appointment overruled all rights and uh, laws of anyone else, that he was sort of the source of all law and basically couldn't do anything wrong. So in order to implement that, he had this uh, policy of of uh, massacre and also uh, killing the metropolitans, the heads of the Russian Orthodox Church, <coughs> because he saw himself, in a way he's a kind of precursor of the absolute uh, power of the of the king and the eventually of the, of the modern view of the totalitarian state, that the state um, rules, is the source of all law and goodness, and that the everyone, including the church, is subservient to the state. This becomes a kind of pretty uh, on-and-off-again continual theme in, in Russian history, ultimately leading down into the communist period that we just completed. <coughs> the, the state um, seeing itself as, having, as being the source of all moral authority and having the right to suppress or control the church in accordance with its own precepts. Following the, rule, the uh, death of Ivan the Terrible, a rule continued for a while <coughs> under one of Ivan's sons, who was in, but as a child, but who was really uh, the rule was one of Ivan's ministers, uh, Boris Gudnov, who had been part of uh, Ivan's kind of uh, dictatorial rule and kept things going until the, even though uh, to a large extent Russian, the state had somewhat collapsed because of all the bloodshed and anarchy caused, um, the, as a result, uh, Poland invaded Russia oh, come on. under the uh, someone known as the False Dmitri. Ivan had a, a second, another little son. Ivan had killed his oldest son, and then I guess the youngest, uh, Boris, had ki killed. But there was the rumor that he hadn't actually died but had escaped to Poland, and it was sort of based on that, that people abandoned Boris and, uh, you know, kind of accepted the uh, Polish invasion. And so at this time of uh, Polish conquest, and meanwhile, back in, we talked about, you know, back in uh, the Ukraine, the western part of Russia, that had been under, fallen under Poland earlier, you had the emergence of a, first, the Unia, came about the, where the initial hierarchy agreed to be under the Roman, under the Pope, 
in exchange for being able to keep their particular customs and services. So the modern Uniat uh, Church, Ukrainian Uniat Church, is the result of this, <coughs> where they have Orthodox services and they wear Orthodox vestments. Even the priests are still married in uh, other countries, but they but they're under the Pope and their theology essentially they're become is controlled to some extent from the Roman Catholic Church. You also had the Unia only partly worked and the second thing the Polish government tried was uh, the establishment of a um, pro-Polish and Polish educated uh, hierarchy for the Orthodox Church that was not in the Unia and this was with Peter Magilla and with him the uh, process of Latinization of the services and to some extent uh, of the theology although this is a gradual process but the services is what particularly Peter Magilla himself was completely western in theology but he becomes uh, through the king of Poland becomes the metropolitan of Kiev the head of uh, what then this becomes sort of a separate uh, church of the Ukraine, which is, as today there's a, some talk about doing that. There's a actually a little schism in Ukraine now because of this idea of whether the Ukrainian church should be a part of the Russian church or should be a separate church. <coughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned that in theology they are Orthodox. No, no. It's, it's who that they're sent? No, the um, which the with the Unia or Peter Magilla? Uh, no, the Unia. Well, it's a ver- varies. Um, I suppose uh, officially it would, their theology is Roman Catholic, probably. Okay, so but they would accept like the filial prayer. Uh, yeah, I suppose creative, creative it it varies. It varies by person, but I think um, on an official level that probably would be correct because they're under the control of the Pope. They'd have to accept whatever theology the Pope said, but although individual people often describe themselves as being uh, Orthodox who are under somehow recognizing the Pope and try to maintain some Orthodox theology, but I think that's more of kind of personal idiosyncrasies rather than how the Unia is intended to be existing. So if they were asked, do they believe that grace and uh, is created or uncreated, how would they answer that? Would they look at the Palamas and the Councils of the 1300s, or would they not? Officially, it would be a Roman Catholic answer, but of course, individuals you would get probably based on, right, and today you would get individual responses. Okay. <coughs> After a while, um, the government of Russia sort of was reorganized, and the emergence of a of a new royal family, a new royal family known as the Romanovs, which remained the ruling dynasty up until World War One. So Nicholas II is the uh, descendant of the person who is now elected, and that's um, Michael Romanov. And there's to a certain extent, uh, Russian power is restored. Poland is driven out of, uh, at least out of the. Uh, Great Russia, not out of Ukraine, and we have a, a, a kind of national rebirth. But the person that I want to talk about is his son, uh, Alexei Romanov, 
It was 1645 to 1676, and in kind of English uh, history, well, this would be just this kind of the, the beginning of the Romanovs is contemporary with the English Civil War and uh, Charles I. And of course, with him, we also saw, see the ideas of royal absolutism, which actually become dominant in Europe in the late 1600s, early 1700s. Um, also, so it's, so Ivan, in a certain sense, is part of a kind of contemporary European development of how kings seeing themselves as having power directly from God, kind of separate from the church and separate from uh, customs and, and uh, traditions of society. <coughs> and also the um, various councils and the nobility and so on. But Alexei, <coughs> under Alexei, the Russia begins to revive and starts to look towards uh, to expansion in two directions. One is to the, the Ukraine, which is the territories of Western Russia, sort of going towards Poland to recapture those Western Russian uh, territories that had, Orthodox territories that had fallen under Polish domination. The second place was to go south into the areas of the former Byzantine Empire that were now under the control of the Turks. And as you may remember, the um, there's kind of a constant um, communications back and forth between the Orthodox Church in Constantinople and in the Empire in general, the old Byzantine Empire in general, with with Russia. And <coughs> so as part of this communication, the the bishops of uh, it's probably, I mean, besides the bishops by people of the uh, Ottoman Empire who were Greek and Orthodox Christians start to look at the revival of Orthodox Russia with some hope that ultimately Orthodox Russia will be able to come down and rescue them. The first place this you know, actually sort of becomes a reality is the area what's now Romania because those provinces are right on the border of of Russia, and so there over the next few centuries there's a constant uh, Russian intervention into those areas, which is why Romania and the Balkans, to a certain extent, remained semi-independent even under the Ottoman Turks, because the um, oh thank you the Romanovs. because Russia was in a position to easily intervene in those areas. And uh, Michael Romanov begins in 1613, beginning of, the, of this new period, down to 1917. The, the uh, oh, yes. What was the name of the previous dynasty? Well, it's actually um, usually referred to as the Rurikide dynasty because it goes back to Rurik, this, um, I think he was a Danish nobleman who was invited into uh, to help the Slavs, essentially, I think against the Khazars in, in kind of opening up the and preserving the trade route going down the rivers towards Byzantium. And so uh, that's who... From that dynasty comes eventually Vladimir, who becomes Christian, and then 
to Vladimir, um, the family of uh, Alexander Nevsky, and coming down to all the way down to the uh, the, uh, the families of Moscow were descended from uh, Alexander's family, which and Alexander's uncle had been the Grand Prince of Yaroslav at the time of the Mongol conquest. Descending from, descending from back from Vladimir, so it's really with Ivan the Terrible's son that the uh, line of Rurik, at least the royal line of Rurik, dies out. And uh, all the way from yeah, so about eight hundred. Yes, yeah. But of course, they had a lot of children, and they also had a <coughs> practice of. Um, passing out <laughs> different cities to the different members. So, in a way, the uh, instead of concentrating on one person at each generation, you know, to kind of pass on, they had a lot of people, and then so if, if one guy died, you know, they would all just sort of move up a notch, so that there were a number of people still, they were all princes, and that helped to preserve the family, I believe, although they also squabbled, and that probably didn't help, but but there was sort of more, uh, you know, all the brothers, all the sons become princes and all rule certain areas, so um, in some ways easier. The part of, but the, so this potential interest in liberating uh, and perhaps re, uh, you know, conquering the Byzantine Empire from the Turks and liberating the Ukraine from the Poles meant that uh, Alexei Romanov, Michael's son, uh, has a special interest in the church in these areas. Now, this is somewhat different from what had gone before because from the Council of Florence, and particularly at the time of Ivan the Terrible, uh, he held a church council called the Council of a Hundred Chapters, and it sort of exemplifies a, a certain attitude of the Russian Orthodox Church that <clears throat> while the Greeks had betrayed Orthodoxy in the Council of Florence, and so as traitors and Uniots they had fallen under the Turks. So they see, okay, well now you're under the Turks, you're not Uniots anymore, but somehow you would, you did betray. And so they see the Greeks as not fully Orthodox because they were kind of under Latin influence. The same with the Ukraine, now under Ivan, you know, looking at those who had fallen under Poland, they also, well, and in fact, with Peter Mogila, it did happen. There was, and, and there's some reality to this in, in, in the Ottoman Empire as well. Uh, as we talked about earlier, the, the uh, being consecrated as a bishop depended upon paying money to the Sultan, and that money often came from the embassies of Western European countries were either Protestant or Catholic. So it was typical for, since actually the Catholics generally had the upper hand, generally for pro-Catholic uh, candidates to receive their support and for uh, the education to be, there was an introduction of, of a network of Jesuit schools in the Ottoman Empire. So there was, and also the printing uh, 
you know, the, the kind of free intellectual life of the Orthodox that was allowed was really going on in Italy and in the provinces controlled by the Venetians, like the, some of the islands, Crete. So, <clears throat> so it was only under the auspices of the Roman Catholics that non-Ottoman Greeks were able to work with some freedom and, and take part in the universities that, that were happening in, in Renaissance Italy. So, to some extent, this is not an exaggeration. The, the Russians did were suspicious of the Greek uh, church and the Ukrainian church in that, and rightly saw that there was Western influence in, on both of these. But, in a way, this led them to see that or, the, the Russian church as peculiarly preserving <coughs> pure orthodoxy. Partly correctly, but also, to a certain extent, seeing this in a almost superstitious way. With with uh, Alexei Romanov, he is not uh, he's not interested in this outlook because he wants to reincorporate the Ukraine and the Ottoman former Byzantine territories into his empire, and he wants these the Orthodox people in these areas to look to him, Alexei of Moscow, as the rightful emperor, Christian Orthodox Christian emperor that they should be all under. So his um, part of his agenda was to bring the Russian Orthodox practice into line with the practices of these other places. And he um, promoted someone to patriarch who was also kind of at first not interested but became interested. He was a Nikon from a poor family who was favored by the Tsar and ultimately at the Tsar's kind of pressure is made into the in the patriarch, uh, patriarch of, of Moscow. Nikon, <coughs> perhaps because of coming from a poor family, is becomes is extremely autocratic and ambitious. But it, but in kind of once he becomes the patriarch, he <coughs> really wants to be having power over everybody, including the Tsar. Yes. Um, that isn't the Tsar. Um, related to. I'm descended from the Byzantine em, 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 emperors because Ivan the Third married the last Byzantine emperor's daughter. Yes, that's true, and uh, I'm not sure with the Ro whether there's a, a familial connection with the Romanovs or not. I I don't know whether that continues there, but that's a good question to to check. <coughs> Nikon. Well, part of one of the things that Alexei and Nikon wanted to undo was the kind of the heritage of Ivan the Terrible. So Nikon w had went up to uh, Soloki to re to bring the relics of Philip, the Metropolitan who had been murdered by Ivan, back down to Moscow, as a kind of sign that the emperor, that the Tsar, was repenting of Tsar of Ivan's policies. However, Nikon looked to uh, things like the donation of Constantine. Which and the kind of papal doctrines of the West, and applied them to himself, <laughs> and said, "Well, he didn't say, well, this thing is a forgery." He said, "Oh, well, this, you know, this applies to me, not to the Pope, <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm the one who is in charge, and the king should be under me." Now he was, Alexei was young, and he was had a, a authority, moral authority. So to a certain extent, it worked, but ultimately, Alexei got tired of Nikon and. 
I kind of got rid of him at the end. But but some people have sort of seen the old believer schism totally as a product of Nikon's uh, agenda. But in fact, we see that it's actually the Tsar who was pushing this before Nikon came along, and then just and pushed pushed it after he was gone. The the um, very good book on this subject that I've been using is uh, Paul Meyendorf's uh, Russia Ritual and Reform, which goes into great detail on, on the uh, reform uh, that led to the Old Believer Schism, and it's an excellent book. But that's kind of a source from where some things in the lecture will be. When this takes place, uh, Nikon is interested in starts writing to the Greek bishops to find out, very anxious to find out, what are all the differences between the Russian church and the Greek church. And the Greek bishops first write back and say, well, don't worry about it. You know, different practices develop in different areas. And that's correct. Actually, in the, in the Orthodox church, we don't have just one um, liturgical tradition that's allowed. I mean, we actually basically now have kind of a Byzantine liturgy and stuff, but initially there were various liturgical traditions in different parts of the of the world. And to a certain extent, um, the current Western Rite and, and things like that are reflections of this, let's say, lack of... Uh, we don't uh, deify the particular service. We say that there are each area kind of developed differently and there's and there's a process of development. And the Greeks kind of understood that and said, well don't worry, you know, you're going to have some differences here. Don't don't worry about them. But Nikon, probably following Alexis' orders, is not not satisfied with this. But in fact he also mentally is in kind of a different he imagines that the services all, everywhere always are exactly the same, and that any differ, differences are the result of error. And in this, he's actually, um, to a certain extent, follow, you know, has the same mindset perhaps as the traditionalists in Russia, that the Greeks, you know, they're they're in error on certain things, and and Nikon takes the point of view, well, Russia's in error on certain things, so we need to correct those errors and be in line with what's going on in Greece. Now, the problem with this is that the people in Russia say, well, back in you know in Greece, they're you know they they gave way to the Catholics, and in Ukraine, you know they gave way to the Catholics, and books they're using are are partly corrupted. They're being printed in Italy, or they're being printed by Peter Mogila, and correctly saying that. But uh, although the ones in Italy, I don't know that they're corrupted, but they are being printed there. So what Nikon does is he claims that he says, okay, well, obviously these errors are occurring. Somebody's in error because we're diverging from the ancient manuscripts. So what we need to do is get all the ancient manuscripts and correct all our service books according to those manuscripts. So he gathers some ancient manuscripts, uh, which it turns out almost none of them really are, have any service books in them. As it turned out, they... And, and he'll have somebody, you know, study the manuscripts, some scholars study the manuscripts, and they will come up with what is the right service. And one of the scholars, as part of uh, Nikon's problem, is this Arsenius the Greek, who was a Greek Orthodox from Italy, who went to Italy and becomes party of the Unia in, Ital in Italy. 
he goes back to Greece, goes back into the Orthodox Church, but then he's captured by Muslims and becomes Muslim to avoid uh, difficulties there. And then he ends up uh, going to Poland, I think, and, and becomes a Uniat in Poland again. And then he goes to Russia, and he's at first arrested because people realize that he, you know, was someone who they this story of what he had done, and gets st- sent up to Solovki where he falls in with the kind of old proto the traditional Russian traditionalists, kind of who are part of the will later become the old believers. But then he's kind of rescued by Nikon with the idea of being the translator to deter, you know to, to produce the correct service books. So he's very happy to oblige. So it's not this team of great scholars who are poring over ancient manuscripts. He gets out his um, service books from Italy and immediately starts translating them into Russian. And that becomes the uh, modern Nikonian books. <laughs> now the service books from Italy are Greek service books. So they are Orthodox books, but they are um, literal. They were just simple translations of the modern Greek practice as produced in these Italian books. So the so Nikon is, is declaring, well, you know, we've solved this problem by wondering which who's got the right books. We've we've examined all the ancient manuscripts. We now know what's the correct service, and the Russian services are in error. And here are the right services. And the traditionalists are saying, well, you're just using, uh, you're introducing the errors of the Ukrainians and the Italian Greek books. And for a long time, people, you know, the Russian church sort of said, oh, it's all from the ancient manuscripts. But uh, what this book shows is that exactly uh, the books that came out are from exactly from the um, Greek books currently being produced in Italy at, at the time. So... What happens is that the Russian church, because remember the Russian church was evangelized in the 800s and the translations were coming from the Bulgarian, first the work of Cyril Methodius in going to Bulgaria. Well, they were in Moravia, but their disciples go to Bulgaria. They they translate to Bulgaria and that gets taken up into Russia. So the Russian services were different because they were older. They had made these translations, um, you know, so almost 800 years before. Whereas in in the Byzantine Empire, services continued to develop. And so you had some differences. And that those differences were you know seen on both sides as kind of like, well, somebody's right and someone's wrong. Nikon decides that the Greeks are right and introduces the Greek services of the, of the 1600s into to become the Russian services. Now you might say, well today, how come the, if you go to a Russian church, why are the services different than they are today in the Greek tradition, let's say Antiochians using the Greek um, services? Well, it's actually, it's not because the Russians went back to the pre-Nikonian services, but because the Greek church continued to develop their services. So what the Russian church is using today is the Greek services published in Italy in the 1600s. But in the 19th century in Greece, there was a major overhaul of their services, a shortening of them, and that's what we use. 
And so that's why there's a distinction. So we're using essentially 19th century Greek services. The Russians are using 17th century Greek services. And the what we'll talk about uh, then is the old believers are using the essentially 9th, 9th and 10th century Greek services. Yeah. Can you give an example of a, of a divergence or a difference uh, between these? Well, no, I I can't actually. He outlines them in the in the book, but um, some of them it is kind of the number of times you say Alleluia at certain points. It's uh, sometimes very simple little things. One of the big points <coughs> had to do with the way you cross yourself, and that actually didn't have anything to do with this. It had to do with a apocryphal story about uh, how to cross yourself and the. Uh, the Russians, in, actually at the time of Ivan the Terrible, you know, read that story and, and interpreted it to mean that you had to cross yourself with two fingers. So they, at the Hundred Chapters Council, they instituted two fingers as necessary. Um, the Greeks, looking at this a little later, said, you know, when they were confronted with this, how you don't, you're not following this, you know, what's in this story. Instead of saying, well, this is an apocryphal story, they just said, oh, well, that's just a wrong translation of that story. That's, you know, it really says that you need to use three fingers. So they switched to three fingers again, which I think is the original usage. But uh, so that became a big thing of contention too. I w wanted to say that Nikon, you know, what Nikon did was not very uh, good, and, and it reflects a certain wrong perception of the um, role of the services that, first off, that the historical development, the, the idea that everything in the Orthodox Church has to be uniform. But this is an error that becomes on both sides. And so, the uh, you know, there ends up being a, a lot of persecution as a result of this. But the but that's a, that's a mistake to begin with, is that the, not to recognize historical development. The, well, let me just go on with what happens, but I, I see some questions, so go ahead. What was the story? I don't remember the story, but it was to telling, you know, I forget, but somebody, somewhere in it it said, oh, but, you know, that you're supposed to use, you know, two fingers, and then well, the other one says three fingers. Well, does it matter if you do it this way or that way? They were doing it this way, oh. and then... Uh, well, does it matter if you use two or three fingers? I, I don't think so, but we use three, that's, yes. You were talking about, like, the diversity of services, um... Like, I know there that um, the Oriental churches use, like, different kind of services. Yes. Would they be... Um, They're coming from the Orthodox tradition. I mean, those were all part of the Orthodox Church, and originally the old um, ro old Roman liturgy, too, and then there's the uh, Spanish liturgy and the French liturgy. They were all Orthodox liturgies. And, I mean, they're all originally... Interesting thing is, you study liturgies, you see that very early <coughs> that one liturgy spread out through the whole Roman world at the very beginning because all the liturgies that develop are all coming out of one original form. But they developed local variations from very early times, the 3rd century. And <coughs> the Orthodox Church just accepted that, that each area is going to have a little bit different way of doing it. What happened is that in this in, in Russia... They, at, at, at a certain extent, they ex had accepted it too, because I mean they weren't anathematizing the Greeks, and the Greeks weren't anathematizing the Russians. But 
the Russian, you know, the Russians sort of thought their way was better, and then Alexei and Nikon decide no, the Greek way is the right way, and we should we should do that. The so the the bulk of the traditionalists refuse to accept the changes, and at first Alexei the Tsar does a very sensible thing. He says, well, all right, you don't have to use my service these new service books as long as you would say that it's okay to use them then you can use the old ones and if the uh, traditionalists had said accepted that which would have been normal I mean there weren't they weren't anathematizing the Greeks I mean the Greeks were using these things anyway so if they had said well the Greeks are Orthodox they're using them so it's okay if you the czar wants to use them that should be fine but instead they said, well, they thought the Greeks are, you know, kind of corrupt, so that's why they're using these crummy books, and and our pious Orthodox Tsar should never, and you know, Orthodox Holy Russia should never submit to these terrible books, so we won't accept them. So they um, kind of anathematized the new books, or instead of saying that it's all right to use the old or the new. So it was their mistake first. Then the, the Tsar, in response, turned around and said, okay, uh, then everyone has to accept the new books, and anyone who uses the old books is not only kind of anathematized, but uh, is a criminal and will be put to death. And so this is uh, how the current schism begins, was that actually, you know, up until the very last minute, the czar... Uh, offered really an orthodox alternative, which was just to accept, which the Greeks had originally offered, to accept diversity as part of the orthodox tradition, liturgical diversity. But because the traditionalists would not accept it, the Tsar decided not to accept it, and so both sides took the position that that the other way, the other form of liturgy was was totally evil, and this uh, led to what's known as the old believer schism. A lot of people were killed because of that, and then uh, also they started deporting them to uh, Siberia, different ways over time to get to kind of try to suppress uh, the following of this. The idea of the old believers was become not just that okay, you're using the wrong service books. We're not going to have anything to do with you until you decide to use the right service books. For the old believers, <coughs> the adoption of the of the Greek service books by the Tsar was an apocalyptic event. In their mind, this meant that the since there always had to in their thinking there always had to be as as in many Christian thinking at this time there always had to be an Orthodox emperor that God had established a Christian emperor to rule over all Christians. <coughs> when Alexei accepted the books with errors as far as they were concerned this meant that there was no longer an orthodox emperor which means it was the end of the world it's the age of the antichrist now <clears throat> second the bishops all accepted the books with errors therefore and and books and the bishops are the source of ordination and sacraments and therefore of divine grace in this material world <clears throat> therefore the Defection, the bishops accepting also the books with errors meant 
that the church as a sacramental body ceased to exist. <clears throat> and now there's some, we'll explain some things, but, <clears throat> but so that because there were no more bishops to ordain priests, not that the, so the priests that were there, that's fine, they could, they're priests, so they can do what they do, but when those priests die out, there's no more, there's no, since there's no right-believing bishops, there can't be any more right-believing priests, therefore there can be no more Orthodox sacraments. And this led to, uh, in the old believer church, several things. One was the what was called the the, the priestless. The mainstream of the old believer was the priestless uh, branch, <coughs> in which the service the churches were no longer built with sanctuaries, because there's no more priests <coughs> to serve liturgies. So the services become reader services. The church ends at the iconostasis. The second uh, was that, so there's, so no more divine liturgies. Second, no more marriages, and so because there's no more priests to perform the marriage, so you ended up with uh, celibate old believers. <coughs> now, in re- reality, these these ideas all kind of make sense. That this is the end of the world. Divine grace has departed. Any crisis come, the uh, you know the church is, is apostatized. In reality, though, the world goes on, and people you know are kind of doing their reader services and thinking, well, you know, what are we going to do here? You know, eventually, you know, the world isn't ending, and I still want to get married. So how are we going to do this? So they, the ones with no marriage, ultimately kind of die out, and the Old believers decide that to have marriages arranged, you know, done by leaders of the old believers, even though they're not strictly the sacrament of marriage. The um, okay, what was your question? Um, there isn't hasn't been an Orthodox emperor since the 1960s. So, um, is that mean the end of the world now? Well, if you take that line of reasoning, yes. I mean, this is a, one way of thinking. I don't, it's certainly not. Uh, something coming out of the uh, scriptures or something. It's just people thought, because they were so used to having an Orthodox emperor, that when there wasn't one anymore, well, that must mean that, you know, the Christian empire is gone, which must mean the the world's near ending. And what we found is, I mean, it may mean that, but we don't, you know, it didn't immediately end when uh, Tsar Nicholas was killed. It just... Well, Ethiopia, of course... But he's not. But he wasn't strictly in the Orthodox Church. He's a he was a monophysite. But um, well, but it may be some sign. That's people debate about that kind of thing. Uh, and I don't I don't want to predict the end of the world as part of the class. <laughs> but uh, well, a separate class on on establishing the exact date of the end of the world. <laughs> but uh, so this what happens is the old believers break up into different groups based on the certain amount of compromise with the world. So in now the majority, you know, I think almost universally all the old believer groups that survived uh, have marriage. And then uh, what happened was that some of the groups thought, okay, we don't have any bishops, we can't get any more priests, but what if we convince some priest from the Nikonian church to come over and be our priest? Now, from the strict 
uh, old believer thinking, traditionalist thinking, is well, that's impossible because with the apostasy, you know, the the end of the end has come. The grace of God is withdrawn from the world. Um, these you know these bishops are apostates. How can they ordain anybody? And so there is no more sacramental grace. But as it's turned out, the you know as time went on, the people who um, the priest priested old believers you know, are still around. So what's happened is they continually recruit priests from the other from the other side and keep, you know, having services. And and the two sides of the old believers don't get along because they, you know, to a certain extent the priestless old believers are the more doctrinally pure, I suppose, in the in this in this idea. The old believers are kind of very old testamental. They um, in a way, they've sort of fixated on this error of making the, um, per, you know, kind of preservation of the complete rubric and everything as the definition of, you know, true Christianity. And so it's a very um, legalistic type of, of group. And now, fortunately, some of these groups have come back into communion with the Orthodox Church in recent years. Partly, I think, because the Orthodox have also, you know, realized a certain mistake in in the practice, you know, what Nikon and uh, and the early and the emperors were doing by uh, killing all these people, you know, sort of trying to to terrorize them into accepting the serv- the new service books that they didn't want to accept. So where the Church now says, okay, you can use those old service books. I mean, those were Orthodox books. We don't mind you using them that's opened the door for them to say, well, okay, as long as we can use our books, we don't, you know, then we'll be willing to be in communion with the church. So that's been the happy result, but it's sort of a very long time in coming. Anyway, that's that's the old believer uh, schism. Are there any questions about it? Is this a date? When did that start? 16... Hmm... Well, the the schism when was in the 1666 and 67 was where that's where the traditionalists refused the offer of the emperor, the czar, to essentially keep you know have accept both services, and then when they refused, he condemned. That's when the old use of the old services was condemned. It was there? Uh, so the. Um, the the beginning of the um, corrections to the books are, is you know a little before that. Uh, Alex, Alexis becomes a czar in 1629. Yes. What impact did this have on the Romanian church? The old believer schism <coughs> itself didn't accept. What it did do was um, divide the Russian church, and it was, I think, very harmful. It also, in some ways, though, it, it did kind of identify this fixation on <clears throat> the forms of the services as a heresy. I mean, to a certain extent, the, the, the persecutors were fixating too, but but maybe more in the sense of trying just to uh, use force to maintain a, a, their authority, whereas the old believers, you know, with the kind of removal of the old believers, perhaps a, a way of trying to escape from this over um, 
I don't know, kind of legalization, legalism, and uh, and rit, you know, a kind of ritualism. Not that the church before necessarily would have been that way if this all hadn't uh, evolved, but but in some ways, it, it, by identifying that as an error, it may have done some good. But uh, but the effect on Romania really came about through the military interventions that come after this, where uh, the Russians tried to break down that ultimately, though, <coughs> what stops the Russian czars from liberating the Christians of the Ottoman Empire is not the Turks, it's the <coughs> it's the uh, the British and the French, because the British decide that they don't want, that they saw Russia as a threat, and so they propped up the Ottoman Empire. I mean, consistently what happens is the British and French both use the Muslims as shields uh, against the Russians, and that's a, it's a, I think, a very cynical policy. It's a very sad thing if you think about that millions of Orthodox Christians were kept in slavery to Muslims merely to suit the interests of British and French foreign policy, particularly that they wanted to secure their trade route to India. They didn't want... they were, Persia was a, uh, and, and the uh, places of Central Asia were guards to keep the Russians from getting too close to Afghanistan and India, northern India. Uh, the, the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman control over the Balkans was a way of keeping the Russians away from having naval access to the Mediterranean, which might interfere. So, um, whether you know whether those fears were in any way realistic, but it, I think it was um, really a, a very uh, unchristian policies, you know, to, to such a very selfish policies to put kind of their political well-being above the well-being of all these of all these Christian people, whereas Russia could easily have, have rescued a large number of them, at least in the Balkans. And perhaps even you know Constantinople and and other areas, but uh, that's something that develops develops later, and we'll talk about that in, in more some of the other classes. Any other questions? Okay, I didn't I didn't get to Peter the Great today because I you know when I originally announced Peter the Great I forgot that I hadn't done this, but Peter the Great is the son of Alexis, although uh, the a young. They were who was born near Alexis's death, and one of the things with Ivan the Terrible too, uh, Ivan the Terrible the Fourth, is that they both he and Peter uh, became czars as children, and as a result, they perhaps suffered, you know, from not being in power and kind of having these uh, uh, regents ruling for them. So that when they came to power, they both became extremely, you know, they're both very interested in dictatorship. <laughs> I think in reaction to perhaps to the uh, childhood trauma of not being in control and, and being fearful. But that's uh, when. We, so next time we will get to Alexis' son and uh, Peter and the tremendous changes that he brings about in Russia as part again of this imperial idea, but in a way, com kind of taking you know ideas of Ivan and. And actually, but then putting them um, even to an extreme of, of westernization because Peter is, is someone who totally identifies himself with Western Europe and 
rejects Orthodox Russia, you know, Russia and Orthodoxy in a way is both barbaric and, and really it, um, to a large extent tries to transform or destroy Orthodox Russia and replace it with a new Western Europeanized Russia, which actually he succeeds. I mean, that's why Russia for the last part of its existence, the upper classes are essentially Western European in outlook and and not um, you know orthodox in some ways perhaps but not particularly orthodox and the society uh, becomes split between the western nobil- you know upper class and the and the uh, peasants are sort of left to be orthodox but then you know it's sort of looked down on as very ignorant and and that's uh, some of the you know the terrible problems that that come out of that all that yes this is not an easy question, I'm sure, but uh, maybe we can talk later. We we see this constant, you know, Latinization, Westernization, sort of uh, injecting itself into Orthodox countries. Yes. Is there are there any examples of Orthodoxy <laughs> influencing and and Orthodox, uh, you know, doing that to the West, Easternizing the West, or is it all yeah. one direction? Oh no, there is. Uh, there are a, a number of ways that that happens. Um, at the time of the Reformation, the Orthodox Church was kind of coveted by both the Catholics and the Protestants as confirmation that they were right against each other. So <coughs> there's a an interest in the Orthodox Church there uh, that continues sort of with the you know in England particularly they saw the Orthodox as kind of a justification for the existence of the Anglican Church in a way, you know, is that, is they, so each, every, they also kind of wanted to identify themselves. And you see uh, the influence of Eastern writers and Eastern fathers and the um, later, you know, even the Russian saints and modern saints are kind of, are very influential, partly because um, sanctity overcomes, you know, political realities. So that, that the interesting thing, I mean, at the from a political and exter- external hierarchical uh, side, the uh, the history of post-Byzantine Orthodox world is is generally tragic one, but not always, but it often is. But then you think, you know, if you look at the uh, tremendous saints that come to live in you know in these t- times, and the great spiritual movements that ultimately you know n- now spread through the West and and uh, we have orthodoxy being spread throughout the world. Somehow, God's grace, you know, takes the uh, the weak and foolish things of this world to overcome the strong. And so, in in the orthodoxy's uh, apparent destruction, you know, the fact that it's a spiritual reality and driven by God and the Holy Spirit, it becomes manifest. I mean, think about the 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 uh, Soviet times, you know, with the absolute annihilation of the church, but um, you know, wonderful saints, kind of, if you read those uh, Father Arseni books or something, you know, somehow great the great uh, victory of the spiritual victory of the church comes out, you know, in, in time when, when you think that, well, there's nothing that can survive. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is Father Arseni saint? Well, he hasn't been canonized, but uh, we see him, yeah, I mean, since true Christians are saints, then, you know, we, we would think we would see him that way. Is there any questions? Any other questions? All right, I guess we better go because I've kept you too late. So, thank you.